Christmas prestige heads. Uh, this is a wonderful Christmas day in 2021, uh, coming at the end of just a wonderful year, a wonderful couple of years. So uh, happy holidays to one and all. Uh, Derek and I are here together, and we're very happy to join you um, at American Prestige. And we've got a very special uh, uh, guest today, uh, Terry Blom Crocker, who is the author of The Christmas Truce. Uh, and so what we thought would be interesting to do today would to be to talk about the, the famous um, Christmas truce of uh, 1914, of, of December 25th, 1914, or maybe I'm wrong on those dates, Terry, please let me know if I'm wrong, and and particularly how it's been remembered by history as this important moment during World War One, when ordinary people threw aside their differences of trying to kill each other and played um, football or, or soccer, as we call it in the States. So thanks again, everyone, for joining us on this Christmas day. And Terry, above all, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Um, so why don't we just get started in what got you interested in this topic in particular? What got you interested in writing a monograph about the uh, Christmas Armistice of 1914? The thing is, the, the book is only a half about the Christmas truce. The second half of the book is how the memory of the truce has gotten distorted over the years in order to play into um, the, the evolving memory of the First World War. And the way I got interested in this is is partly from my upbringing. I, I grew up in a family whose attitude towards revisionism would have made a Soviet historian proud. You know, <laughs> that there was no no idea that accuracy existed. And then when I first started working, I was actually a paralegal long before I did my graduate work in history. And I discovered the, the incredible difference between what people thought happened and what had actually happened. As a paralegal, I tend to work with the documents in large cases. And so, you know, we would have depositions where people would, would be asked what happened four years ago or wherever, you know, whatever the incident was. And they, they'd recount something that was totally and absolutely contradicted by what the documents showed. So I've always been really interested in the difference between what people remember and why they remember it and what actually happened. And that, that sort of got me on the path towards the Christmas truce. This happened about oh, when I was early on in my, in my graduate work, because I worked for the University of Kentucky, so I was doing my graduate work part-time while I continued to work there in the legal office. And I wanted a topic to do with the First World War because it interested me. And I was reading about the Christmas truce and, um, you know, specific books written about it and how it was presented in histories. And they all assured me that, you know, details of the truce had been censored. People that weren't aware of what had happened during the truce because of the censorship, that the soldiers were rebelling against the war, you know, that, that the higher ups, you know, were hysterical about this and had prosecuted the soldiers for rebelling against the war. And I thought, well, that's really interesting, you know, that, that something could be so completely dismissed when it happened to so many people, because between the German and the British sides, about 100,000 people, soldiers participated in the truce. So I decided that what I would do was go and look at the newspapers that were published around the time and see if 
any of the reporters writing about the war had hinted about the truth. They couldn't publish it, but maybe they dropped hints about how quiet it was during Christmas, things like that, and just to see if reporting changed afterwards, picking up something really subtle. So I went and looked at the newspapers. I called them back on microfilm from that time, and it turned out I didn't have to look for anything subtle at all. There were these great big headlines, Christmas truce and, you know, at the front. So it, as far as the British papers were concerned, it had not been censored at all. And after that, I got very curious as to what all these historians um, believed about the truth, whether any of it was true. And the more I looked into it, the more I discovered it wasn't, you know, that, that the soldiers wrote openly home about participating in the truth. Their letters were not censored at all. The newspapers published the accounts of the truth that the soldiers had written. There were no punishments related to the truce. Um, that I could locate, and I read everything very extensively. So I was just interested in the fact that there was this huge body of contemporaneous work that contradicted everything historians said, and yet the historians went on repeating all these falsehoods. So that's how I got interested in the truce. The first half of my book is about what actually happened during the truce, because I thought it was time somebody knew. And the second half is tracing how it had been written about in the hundred years since it happened. I wrote the book in about 2013 or so, in the hundred years since it had happened. So, um, you know, to see how this story that everybody now firmly believes in had evolved. Well, that leaves us in a very natural place to start. What the hell happened? Um, what happened uh, on Christmas 1914? What was the state of the war? How did it come to be that you have a mass 100,000-man um, contingent basically call from what I understand was a spontaneous truce, but maybe you could disabuse me of those notions. So what actually happened? Well, the thing is, everybody talks about the Christmas truce as if it was a monolithic event. It wasn't. There were lots and lots of tiny little truces that were arranged on a purely local basis between one group of soldiers and the group on the other side. So there were only about half of the people in this, it was only a 20-mile section of the front um, where the British faced the Germans, and there are good reasons for that, I'll explain later, where the British uh, troops faced the Germans, that the truces happened, and only about half the people along that 20-mile front participated in the truces. So, in fact, you could be out fraternizing with the enemy and, you know, still be hearing gunfire from the, the regiment that was fighting next door. So, um, the other thing that's important, that's important to remember is that the truces themselves were not all that similar. There were some that involved what we now think of as the full-out Christmas truce that, you know, was the drinks and the fraternization and maybe even, you know, kicking a ball about, although those tended to be over, um, over-exaggerated too. There were some truces where everybody just shouted across the other side saying, yeah, let's not fight today. And everybody sat in their own trenches and didn't fight. And there were, trench, uh, there were truces that were just purely for the purpose of burying soldiers um, who had fallen the previous week in a battle that had happened along those lines. So when people talk about the truce, they think that everybody you know, put down their guns at about noon on Christmas Day, walked across, fraternized with the other side, and then came back. But in fact, you know, that wasn't necessarily the pattern. Some truces started on Christmas Eve because the Germans started singing carols and the British joined in. 
Some truces only happened for about a half an hour while they went out and picked up the bodies for burial. Some truces took all day, and some truces lasted as long as two or three weeks. Um, there was one war diary I read in particular where, so on the 11th of January, they were still throwing their hands in the air and say, well, I guess we're going to go fighting again at some point, but who knows? <laughs> um, the, a lot of the things that, another thing that's important to remember about the truce is that everybody believes they were stopped because they got orders from higher up not to um, fraternize with the enemy. And in fact, it didn't happen that way. In most cases, the truces ended because people rotated out of the lines. In spite of another myth of the First World War, in spite of the fact that, that everybody believes that everybody spent four and a half years in the trenches just staring at the other side, the, the regiments were rotated in and out, usually every three or four days. So if they'd been fraternizing on December 25th and they got rotated out on December 27th, then generally the next people who came in, you know, just picked up the war again without, without any question, even if they'd been fighting in a different, even if they'd been fraternizing in a different part of the front. So, so when you talk about the Christmas truce, everybody thinks of, you know, the fraternization, the football matches and that was just a very small part of it. A lot of cases, there were just, you know, people just saying, well, let's not fight today. And in fact, there were truces between the French and the Belgians and the Germans, but they were much more likely to be on the, um, on the order of, we're just not going to shoot anybody today. They didn't actually go out and fraternize. And, and there's good reasons for this. Um, you know, the battle at this point was in southern Belgium and northern France. The French were not likely to be feeling particularly friendly towards the Germans and didn't want to fraternize with them. Ditto for the Belgians. Whereas the, the Germans and the British, neither of them were fighting on home soil. Neither of them was being occupied. So, you know, they were much more likely to have a different attitude towards the war. Another thing that people don't realize is that they think that everybody in the trenches at this point was really gung-ho, you know, let's kill the enemy, etc., all the propaganda they've been hearing. But in fact, the soldiers who were in the lines at Christmas 1914 were all pre-war enlistees. The British had a very small standing army. They didn't have a draft. So everybody who was in the trenches at this point was a career soldier. Fighting was what they did. That was their profession. If they were told to go fight for their country, whether it was in, you know, border skirmishes in India or over in France, they went and did so. They didn't take it personally. The German army was a much larger army because they had a draft. But again, everybody who was there was a pre-war enlistee or draftee you know national service was what they expected to do everybody did it and you know germany was in a war so they were up there fighting uh, professional soldiers have a very very different attitude towards war than people who rush off to enlist because you know they think their country's in danger war is their business fighting is what they do they were there fighting um it also gives them a different attitude towards the enemy you know they tend to see the enemy as more the government of the other side rather than the actual soldiers that they're fighting. So that's another reason why the Christmas truce happened um, in, the first, in the first winter of the war, but not in subsequent winters because then there was much more bad feeling and there were much, many more soldiers up there taking it personally because they had involved specifically to go and fight the Germans. Terry, one of the things that I, I maybe 
um, we could we could talk about in terms of kind of busting uh, the myth about the Christmas truce. Um, I, I wonder, you know, there is this feeling that, uh, you know, everybody just decided on December 24th, hey, it's Christmas. It's time to stop fighting. But uh, as you said, these were local uh, agreements. They weren't, you know, kind of large scale agreements. And they varied quite a bit in terms of the the level of um, truce, if you will, or the level of fraternization that was involved. One of the things that I've seen hints of or suggestions of um, is that this was a phenomenon that had been going on already, uh, again, at these kind of small unit levels um, for some time before Christmas 1914. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and maybe about, uh, you know, how this sort of the, this is, seems like an aspect of people kind of adjusting to the nature of trench warfare more than a specific like, hey, it's Christmas. Let's all uh, be friends for a couple of days. Well, the fact is it, the fact that it was Christmas helped. People are just plain homesick. They want to be home with their families. They don't want to be, you know, in a cold, muddy trench shooting somebody. So so the Christmas part did help. But also Truces are common throughout warfare. They go back to the Greek and Roman wars. There were truces during the Napoleonic Napoleonic Wars. There were truces during America's Civil War. For the most part, truces after a battle are just purely about going out, picking up the bodies on the field while you're not being fired upon by the other side and taking them back. So um, the other thing that that um, is important to remember about the First World War is trench warfare was very debilitating. It wasn't the first time there had been trench warfare. There was some during the Civil War, some during the Russo-Japanese War, uh, but it was the first time it had been this extensive and on such a large scale. And um, people just get tired. They get bored. You know, they're sitting in the trench for four days. If there's not a major battle on, they're just staring at the other side. They're cold. They're wet. They're hungry. Um, they're not comfortable. And so, um, you know, any excuse to break up the monotony is is important. Uh, there's also this attitude that, that developed during the First World War. Somebody wrote a book about it, Tony Ashworth, called The Live and Let Live System, which was all about making trench warfare more bearable. So the idea was, you know, you fired when you were supposed to fire, and if people were, you know, rushing around above the trenches, yeah, you were going to snipe at them. But if you were to fire upon the group that was bringing up the other side's breakfast, then they were going to fire on the group that was bringing up your breakfast. And that way, nobody was going to have any breakfast. And that wasn't going to make life any better for anyone. So one of the, the things that they kind of worked out, not verbally, just, you know, by by custom, um, in the trenches in the First World War was this idea that that you know, we're not going to fire during certain times on routine things like, you know, meal parties or things like that, because we don't want to have our dinner interrupted either. And so that that's something that the Christmas truce can maybe be seen as part of that. But also there were just the normal tr normal truces to collect bodies. I ran across one in one of the war diaries I read that happened in October there was a, a party of British soldiers out picking up bodies. They ran into a party of German soldiers out picking up bodies. They they chatted for 10 minutes. They may have shared a cigarette or two. Um, they picked up their bodies and they went on their way. And this was, 
you know, not a secret. It was recorded openly in the war diaries and the war diaries, which are the day to day records of what the the troops did. Uh, went up to headquarters. So if they were terrified about being punished for it, you think they wouldn't put it in the war diary, but they did. And all the, the Christmas truces were also recorded in the war diaries. So it's obvious that headquarters was perfectly aware of it and didn't court-martial anybody for it. Can we talk a little bit about how people communicated over trenches? Because ultimately, this is a project of communication. So you talked a little bit about, you know, there were sort of informal customs. You don't shoot the people bringing you breakfast. But beyond that, you know, it's at least in in popular memory, you know, you put your head above the trench, you, you might be sniped or, or you might be might be shot. So what were the, the actual mechanisms of communication that allowed these, you know, various truces to um, get going? Well, there were snipers standing all the time, so um, but that didn't stop the two sides communicating. And I ran across a lot of, of instances of this in people's letters, you know, like one guy, uh, one, one battalion had a very good singer. So at night he used to sing and the Germans would applaud. Um, you know, the Germans would shout across, you know, um, who's in the opposite trenches because people rotated out. They wanted to know who they were facing. So communication, the trenches were close enough that you could usually just shout across. So so that was what appeared to happen that, um, you know, a lot of cases they just shouted across from behind the trench. You don't shoot today. We won't shoot today. Uh, there weren't many German speaking British soldiers that I could see, but there were a fair amount of, of English speaking German soldiers. Uh, there was a, a pretty sizable contingent of Germans working in London before the war. Uh, the British believed they were all waiters, so they used to make jokes about that. They said if you shouted waiter in the trenches, half of the Germans would rush out to take your order. So, um, yeah, it was there was a lot of more communication than you think. And if they weren't fighting, they would call across to each other. Sometimes, you know, insults, sometimes um, joking insults, sometimes just being friendly. So one thing that I was curious if you could talk about is the state of um, the importance of Christmas in uh, this culture, because my understanding is that, and I might be wrong, this is a popular understanding, but things like the Christmas tree weren't introduced to Britain until World War One, actually, and sort of the, the rise of the Windsor family who were using a German tradition um, in the English context. And, and cr- uh, Christmas wasn't as big a thing um, until like, you know, Dickens is a Christmas carol. So what was the cultural role of Christmas at this moment uh, in the history of, you know, North Atlantic society writ large? Well, um, it, the, as far as Christmas trees go, that was actually a big thing in German and had in Germany and had been for a few centuries. In fact, the um, Germans uh, government decided that they were going to ship Christmas trees to the front. And one of the things that started some of the truces was the Germans put candles in their Christmas trees and put them on the sides of the, the front of the trenches on the parapets. So, and the British certainly recognized that custom because they knew at first they thought what's going on. And then when they saw it, they said, Oh, it's Christmas trees. So they did know about, about the Christmas tree. Um, I assumed at first that the Christmas truce would be at least partly about religion. And if a, a, um, 
battalion had a chaplain attached to it, yeah, the chaplain would come out and, and give some kind of service, particularly when there was burial of the dead involved. But it, it really seems to have been just about sentiment rather than religion. You know, they, they associated food with um, Christmas. They associated gift-giving with Christmas. So when they went out, they brought food and they, they you know, handed each other chocolate and sausages, whatever they'd been sent from home. There were huge numbers of parcels at least sent on by the British uh, public to the front. You know, if you see advertisements in all the British papers at the time, you know, things that you could buy that could be easily sent to the front. People baked cakes, you know, to send them to the front. This was all really normal. In fact, the, um, the princess, Princess Mary, um, sent uh, uh, a box containing either cigarettes or tobacco to every um, soldier at the front. The assumption was they all smoked or used, you know, pipe tobacco. Um, and and I actually found one of those boxes online and purchased it just to have a little bit of the Christmas truth. Um, it looked far too nice to have gone through it, so I expect somebody just saved it and sent it home immediately. Um, but it even has the little Christmas card inside. So Christmas was a very big deal. It was a very big deal in the sense of it being a family holiday. And people were very homesick. You know, they were writing letters going, oh, gosh, I wish I could be home. You know, they, they were saying things like, I've had enough of the war. But it didn't mean that they were fed up. It didn't mean that they were finished fighting the war. They were just kind of fed up with it being Christmas and them being stuck in the trenches. So that so, I think leads. The, uh, sorry, I was just going to say that leads naturally. What was the state of the war at this time? For people, uh, who the might state not know? of the war was stalemate. You know, on the Western Front at least. On the Eastern Front. Um, you know, it was much more mobile because you didn't have trenches. The trouble with the Western Front is what happened is the Germans, you know, um, uh, implemented the Schlieffen Plan, which was their big sweep through Belgium. Their idea was to get to Paris as quickly as possible before the British could mobilize and get across the Channel because they yeah, figured repeat they the Franco-Prussian War, basically the strategy. Right, of the it was refighting the Franco, and it worked just fine in the Franco-Prussian War, but they weren't fighting a two-front war then. The whole point of the Schlieffen Plan was to sweep in, defeat the French before the British had a chance to rush in to help, and then throw everything at the Eastern Front to defeat the Russians. Um, that didn't work because the British did rush over to help. The French dug in, and even though August and September 1914 were a total rout for the British and the French, at that point they dug in and started resisting. So while they got pretty close to Paris, you could hear the guns in Paris, they didn't quite make it to Paris. Then the, the British and the French pushed them back a little. And at that point, it was about October, everybody was exhausted. They dug trenches because that's what you do when you're stopped. You dig something so that you can, you know, settle down and not be shot by the enemy. And the trenches basically didn't budge for the next four years. So, you know, if you look at a a, a, a map of how the battle went, it, it was fought within a 20-mile period over four years until the end when the Americans started coming over in great numbers. And then, you know, we pushed them back entirely. Um, but, but at Christmas 1914, it was a stalemate. And um, the British generals, who weren't very good at fighting um, fighting trench warfare even the germans and the uh the french weren't either so nobody really had any idea of how to fight 
um, trench warfare, how to win at trench warfare. So they just kept planning these big set-piece attacks like the Somme, where they would throw everything into it, bombard the other side, and hope that they'd get through. And this just went on not working for four years. But when we think of the big battles like the Somme, one of the things we have to remember is that most of the time, Nothing was going on on the Western Front except everybody was sitting in their trenches wondering if they were going to be sitting in their trenches for the next 40 years. Yeah, there's that famous quote about war. I'm not sure if it refers specifically to World War One, where it's 99% extreme boredom and 1% extreme terror. Um, and I think that that always stuck with me as a quote about war. So, Terry, um, why don't we get into the historical memory part? So what is the the truce happens what happens the next day? Um, and then what, what happens in the immediate aftermath? And then we, we could go from there because I'm very curious to see how its portrayal changed over time because that says so much about how the portrayal of the war itself changed over time. Exactly. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the first thing everybody says about the truce is the soldiers were rebelling against the war and showing they were completely fed up and didn't want to fight it anymore. Except, of course, they all went back to fighting it a week later. So, um, you know, without any any undue grumbling, you know, it just disappeared from from letters. You know, they stopped writing about it. They stopped talking about it. They just went back to their job. It didn't mean that anyone was having a good time. It just meant that they didn't think the war was useless. So um, it was written up in the letters. The letters were sent home to families. Families were invited by all the major newspapers to send their soldiers' letters into them, and they would be published. So every newspaper had a letters from the front um, section, and the news of the Christmas truce was published in those between the end of December and about the second week in January. You know, I read five or six major newspapers, and it was big news. They were writing about it every day. Um, the illustrated papers had had photographs and drawings of the event. So, at least in Britain, it was very well known. I do understand in France, France, the news was censored a bit. But since the French weren't really participating, there wasn't much news to censor. I think it also got through in Germany. Um, I don't read German, so I wasn't able to follow up from the German side of it. So so it happened. Uh, the soldiers wrote home about it, completely uncensored. What were the themes and how it was portrayed in the newspapers? Like, um, were there any incidents that they picked up on in particular? Were they saying, you know, this is a crit- criticism of the war? This just shows how humanity could de- get together. Like, what were the major thematic approaches that they adopted? The thing is, they didn't adapt a thematic approach because I think they weren't sure entirely what to do with the news. They weren't sure how it would be received. So all they did was print the soldiers' letters. You know, and there would be headlines like a friendly game of football, you know, exchanging uh, presence between the trenches. But aside from the headlines, people didn't tend to write articles about it. They just published the soldiers' letters. But the soldiers' letters were so interesting and buried that, um, you know, they really didn't have to write about it. The soldiers' words were were saying it all well enough. And the soldiers all said, look, you know, start out by saying, you're not going to believe what happened. And then they'd go on to tell what happened. And, you know, either it would be short because, oh, we went out and buried the dead. And then we, you know, we exchanged a bottle of wine. And then we beg- went back to our trenches or we hung out forever you know, we, we, in fact, it's two days later and we're still hanging out with each other. Yeah, things like that. So, so it was all written, but in a very, um, gee, I finally have something interesting to write about after three months of telling you how muddy and cold and wet it is. So the soldiers really picked up on this because it was something that was different. You know, hanging around in trenches was really boring. 
when it wasn't dangerous, even when it was dangerous, it sounds like it was kind of dull. So, so that was the attitude the soldiers took, and the newspapers didn't see any need to censor it or, um, you know, or, or spin the story in any way. The way the soldiers were telling it was good enough for them. Um, it was written up in all the war diaries. Um, one of the generals in charge of one of the divisions got pissy about it and said, I want to know what happened. And so um, the the uh, officers under his under his uh, command had to sit down and write, well, this is what happened. And then he wrote back and said, OK, you know, that's fine. We're not going to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. So so, so there there's not no much punishment. of an official response. There's not really an official response. There wasn't really an official response, but the officers who were in the trenches were most for the most part fine with it. What's your explanation for that? Because it seems like that's a pretty significant breakdown in discipline. Um, sorry, yeah. Again, professional soldiers, they didn't see it as a breakdown in discipline. They just thought, let's all have a nice Christmas. There was one lieutenant colonel. Um, he sounded like a really nice guy from his letters. He was killed in March 1915. I was really sorry when I read that. Yeah, um, with, when you study World War One, it's always like, this guy seems cool, dead yeah. in 1960. It's really, it's hard to fathom how many of those people were killed. Yeah, I mean, there were some soldiers that I followed all the way through. There was one, and this is a total aside, who was actually a reporter for a London paper, joined the territorials, went over there, um, spent the first two and a half years fighting. A really nice guy, wrote wonderful letters home, kept a diary, just really um, interesting to read. Got captured during the Battle of the Somme, spent two years in a German prisoner of war camp, and he wrote this one letter home. This was all bundled in with his papers. He wrote this one letter home to his brother saying, um, you know, it's it's another year in the prisoner of war camp. I can't believe Christmas is coming again. This must have been in 1917 going into 1918. Um, teasing his brother about his recent marriage. And then he followed it up by saying, I've been getting Red Cross packages from our mother. Um, she's spending far too much money on them. You know, please tell her not to do this. And I thought, how can you be that nice? If I were in a prisoner <laughs> work camp, I'd be like, mortgage the house. Send, send everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really nice guy. And so I read, I, I normally didn't read every letter word for word because, you know, there'd be years and years worth for everybody. And I didn't have the time, but I read his all the way through. Two years after the, two months after the war, two months after he got re repatriated, he drowned. In oh a swimming God. accident, aye, I was just aye. no. Yeah, I actually burst into tears in the in the Imperial War Museum reading room. And of course, they all looked at me, thinking, "Who's this American?" But um, yeah, you do get really attached to people. Uh, sorry, that was a bit of an aside. No, no, we, that that's no, that's, that's really great. interesting. But this this one lieutenant colonel, he he wrote to his wife. He wrote to his wife every single day, really sweet letters. And he said, the Germans say they want to have an armistice for Christmas and I have no objection. It'll do us all good to have a few days without, you know, any, any bullets and we can get the trenches repaired without worrying about being shot at. And that was the attitude of most of the officers on the ground. And the officers who were in command, who could have made a fuss about it if they wanted to, because as I said, it was written openly about in all the war diaries. It was published in the newspapers. Everybody knew what was going on there attitude was like eh, so you know and and that was it maybe even it happened a few years later when you had officers that's my who, question why weren't there more of them because that's the counterfactual right why did this become a thing in world war one where every year you had a you know a week or two around christmas 
There were soldiers who every year would write home, because I, I checked everybody's letters around Christmas every year, who would say, gee, I wish we could have another truce. But there were also soldiers who say, yeah, it happened once, it's never going to happen again, because they've killed too many of us. We're just too pissed off. Interesting. Um, so the, like the, the war hatred had grown up over the yeah, years, that and, you begin and to hate of course, these people. The troops in the front line, you know, they were more and more joined by regiments who had been formed, you know, by people who had enlisted at the beginning of the war, when they right. were hearing all the pro-hate, pro-German hate in the you know propaganda in the newspapers. So it was really our first war, our first year of the war thing. You know, I didn't see any chance that it could be repeated. Um, there was a lot, of course, there was a lot of fraternization and and truces on the Eastern Front. Um, in 1917 or so, but that was just the Russian soldiers saying, you know, we're not fighting anymore. You know, we're, we're fed up with the war. So that was to do with the revolution and the political events there, not to do with, you know, the, the inherently friendly nature of the Russians. Um, um, so actually, could I just uh, talk about that for a second? Um, so what's the reason that it happened on the Western Front and not the Eastern Front? There's a, there's a question of trenches and fluidity, but was there a sense of more cultural similarity between the Germans and the British, um, you know, maybe perhaps sharing of royal lines? You know, they're both Germanic languages uh, as opposed to the Russians? Or what do you think, why do you think that happened specifically on the Western Front? Well, you, your point is very correct. The British, in fact, um, you know, when we think Germans, we think Germans. And mostly we think Nazis. But in the in the First World War, German reunification was a relatively recent thing. So the British tend to blame the war on the Prussians. And they were like, oh, Prussian we're opposite militarism. the Saxons, we're opposite the, um, oh, I've just forgotten the word for them. Uh, the Bavarians were opposite the Saxons and the Bavarians, so we don't care. You know, in fact, they told us, don't go down that way because they're Prussians, they'll shoot you. So, so the war was very much blamed on the Prussians. And a lot was made of the similar traditions like the Christmas trees and Christmas presents, um, you know, between the two cultures. And that you saw in the British letters a lot of, yeah, it, it, you know, they're not like the Prussians. These are nice guys. So we'll, we'll go and hang out with them. So that was another thing that, that is very foreign to us today. We wouldn't think to blame World War I on a segment of, of right. Germany rather than on all of Germany. On so. Prussian militarism. And that becomes a big thing, I think, in American propaganda during World War II, um, you know, how Prussia is really um, dangerous for all of these things. But why don't we turn to the memory of it? So the war ends in 1918 uh, at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, very famously. Um, and so how does how is the, the truce initially portrayed, if it's portrayed um, at all? And, and then when does it start becoming part of the mythos of World War one well it's not talked about in the post-war period as much as you'd expect i mean it's been four and a half years of war and in 1918 nobody's really dwelling on a few days in 1914 that didn't matter you know people just thought it didn't matter it was entertainment for the troops it was a snow day that's how i like to describe it to people it's like that day you wake up when you're nine years old and school's been canceled, except in this case, you know, there's bullets as well. Of course, we have that in school now, too. Um, so, so that's how they looked at it. So whenever anybody was writing a history of the war, 
um, you know, during or immediately after the war, like the Times published a weekly magazine that you could keep and put together that kept you up with everything that was going on with the war. And um, so the Christmas truce was mentioned in those. It was mentioned in post-war histories. I read histories from the early 20s, from the late 20s, and it always got a quick, yeah, that was fun, you know, and then they went back to fighting. And, and that's all the mentions you'd get of it. And, you know, it would turn up every once in a while somebody would write a novel and, and the Christmas truce would be part of it. There was a guy who gave a speech in 1930 in the House of Commons um, where he talked about the Christmas truce. And he was a socialist. He was a pacifist. And his attitude was we should have all stopped fighting that day. Well, there were people who four and a half years later said that, you know, that we never should have fought at all. There was a lot of pacifism in Britain in the 20s and the 30s because of, you know, the problems there after the war and the fact that the war took so much out of the British and, um, you know, really weakened them dramatically. So, um, you know, it wasn't surprising that that it was it was a, um, a big debate over, um, you know, whether people who had been conscientious objectors during the war should advance in the civil service, even though they'd stayed home while other people went to fight. And he brought up the Christmas truce during that. But his, his attitude was, you know, the pacifists were heroes and nobody argued with him. Everybody just said, well, I don't necessarily agree or I do agree, depending on which side you're on. But it wasn't a big scandalous thing. Um, and that went on for the 20s and the 30s. You know, people had all different points of view on the war. Um, certainly in Britain, there were some people that turned them into devout pacifists. There were some people who said the war was perfectly justified. In fact, you know, as Nazism loomed, as you got towards the late 30s, there were a lot of people who said, you know, if we had fought them um, all the way, if we'd taken the war all the way to Berlin, the Germans would have understood that they'd been defeated and Adolf Hitler would not have been able to to push his the German army wasn't defeated. We were stabbed in the back by the government um, point of view. So there were people who thought they hadn't been hard enough on the Germans. Um, you know, there were people who, who believed that the Treaty of Versailles was the reason that Nazis uh, came to power. There were people who said, you know, nonsense. And I'm one of them. I mean, if you look at any treaty at that time, it, they're always very punitive. The Treaty of Versailles was no more punitive than the treaty that ended the Franco-Prussian War. And the French didn't use that as an excuse to, you know, go beat up the Germans 20 years later. So there was this multiplicity of attitudes in Britain, particularly during the 20s and the 30s. Um, in Germany, it wasn't remembered at all because they lost. And they're not going to remember a day that, that you know, they, they fraternized with the enemy. That's certainly And especially not with the, the, the Dolstos legend, you know, the Jewish stab in the back, the Bolshevik stab yeah. in the back. That is, you can't, you can't start talking about Christian ritual. I think that's an element as well there, yeah. Exactly. Um, the other thing uh, nobody knows about the Christmas truce, or very few people know about the Christmas truce, is Adolf Hitler was actually in the trenches for it, and he refused to go out and fraternize. He said it was absolutely disgraceful. Really? So, Hitler yes, wrote about he, the... He, either he wrote about it or he said that to somebody. I can't remember exactly. I didn't wow. tend to make a fuss over it in my book because, you know, it didn't seem particularly relevant, um, Adolf Hitler's attitude towards the truce. But, and, you know, that may be apocryphal. I've read it in a number of places, but just because you read it in a number of places doesn't mean it's true. Anyway, so that takes us up to the Second World War. And obviously we know what happened in the Second World War. The Germans are seriously the bad guys now. And pacifism is swept away 
with very good reason, because, you know, turning the other cheek isn't going to get you anywhere against, you know, the Nazis. So, um, and then you hear very little about, about um, the war in Britain, uh, about the First World War in Britain during the 50s, uh, late 40s and 50s. It's all about the Second World War. You know, the books written are about the Second World War, lots of histories about it, lots of stories about heroism. And, you know, the war was so big, it was hard for everyone to, accomp uh, to encompass you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about what happened in Europe. My husband's father um, landed in Singapore two days before it fell to Japan. So his entire war was three and a half years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. You know, it's very hard to, to understand something that big. And the British spent, you know, a good 15, 20 years trying to get wrap their arms around what happened in the Second World War. You know, even the Holocaust was not particularly largely talked about during the 50s. It wasn't until the 60s and Eichmann's trial that that people outside of, you know, the, you know, specialist uh, the, communities, basically. The right. Yeah. Exactly. Really yeah. understood how big the Holocaust was. Yeah, everybody heard the numbers afterwards, but that's not the same as knowing what happened. Yeah, the and two big moments in the United happened. States are Eichmann, and the two big moments in the United States are the Eichmann trial, uh, Arendt's response to it in particular, and then the, the release of Lanzmann Shoah was a, a big a big moment, too, in Holocaust right. memory. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, it took that long for everyone to understand what happened, what was going on in Russia. Russia lost 27 million people in the war, um, you know, to understand what had happened in France, to understand that it wasn't necessarily about good guys and bad guys. You know, there were collaborators on, our, on, on the good guys' side. There were people resisting on the bad guys' side. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot still in Britain that isn't talked about um, that much about, you know, there were people in the upper echelon of the British government, including the, the former Prince of Wales who abdicated the throne, who would have been happy to collaborate with Hitler. In fact, he tried to. Um, so, you know, the British spent a long time coming to grips with everything that happened in the Second World War, the nuance, the complexity, um, you know, how they managed to lose their empire. And that was also a big deal, obviously, in the 50s. And then with the 50th anniversary of the First World War, uh, the BBC did a big, like, 50-part series on it. it. It was, you know, aired over, over um, you know, weeks and weeks. Everybody watched it. Everybody talked about it. Everybody suddenly started talking to the soldiers who'd been involved because they were all still around to to talk about it. But it's a very different attitude towards the war because now you're looking at it in light of the second world war. So as a standalone war, as the war to end all wars, people said, you know, maybe we shouldn't have fought it. You know, there's debate. Some people think we shouldn't. Some people think we should, but as soon as you drag the second world war into it and the attitude that the BBC took in that series and that everybody's the line that everybody's, pretty much taken since, which is, if not for the First World War, the Second World War wouldn't have happened. The Second World War happened because, you know, we were mean to Germany in the Treaty of Versailles, and I don't understand why, you know, they, they're taking this attitude, because Nazism is cancer. There's, there's no way that anything that we did could have justified that. Um, but it was all about blaming the First World War for causing the Second World War, which is crazy, and and dissipating the blame for the First World War. So suddenly, 
in my mind and a lot of historian mind, Germany started the war. Germany started the war. They egged Austria-Hungary on to attack Serbia. Um, they they wrote them a blank check. You know, they they pushed for to get everybody involved. If they hadn't invaded through Belgium, it's it's unlikely that the British would have come in. You know, all these things, and yet now suddenly everybody's responsible for the war. And there are a lot of books on the subject. Um, Sleepwalkers is a famous one. This idea that that every, Europe just kind of drifted towards war without really understanding why. No, they went to war because Germany started getting aggressive towards everybody. Germany had definitely territorial ambitions, and they involved subjugating France and turning Europe into one big common market that Germany ran. So, so as soon as you started you know, taking away the the blame for who started the war and putting the blame on the people who wanted, you know, through the Treaty of Versailles and, and and that and all that, suddenly the First World War is this completely unjustified thing. Whereas to a lot of the soldiers who fought in it, and I had one soldier who fought in both the First and the Second World War, he said, there wasn't any difference. We We did both because of German aggression. You know, the Germans were just nastier the second time around, you know, more horrible. But that was the reason for both wars. And um, but that's not how the the popular media saw it. That's not how it was portrayed in popular culture. And so suddenly the Christmas truce, which was, gee, wasn't that sweet when people heard about it before, suddenly it became exhibit A in the anti-war narrative. Look, the soldiers didn't want to fight. So that's my question. Does this relate to the new left? Because in 68, you know, this is this big um, new left moment, a, a critique of the yeah. Vietnam War. So if, if this is when memory uh, of the Christmas truce comes uh, around, I can't imagine that it's not related to Vietnam and what's going on in terms of American imperialism, things like that. It, it absolutely was. And, and in fact, I used to teach when I taught at the university a course called War, Film and Memory. Um, that covered war in the 20th century, from the Boer War through the War on Terror. And that was the thing that I had the most trouble getting students to understand. What we think about war now is not what people thought about war in 1914. We are looking at war from a post-Vietnam standpoint. And, um, you know, and trying to get them to understand that the attitudes we have about war now are not the attitudes the soldiers had about war when they were going into the trenches in 1914, 1915, 1916. And that's something that's really hard to get across because we are very committed to our post-Vietnam anti-war standpoint. Um, but in Britain, I think it had a lot to do with the Second World War as well. So it was very easy to say the Second World War was the good war, even though it killed, you know, 55 million people. And the First World War, which killed a fifth of that, was the bad war. Um, and and so that's just how it's been portrayed. Of course, this is a simplification. I mean, you know, to you'd have to read the entire book to, to get all the detail. But that's what happened in Britain in particular. And And what's really funny is how this this shift in memory impacted even the people who had participated in the Christmas truce. I read four or five accounts from soldiers who were interviewed um, during the 70s. They There was this big, oh my goodness, they're all going to be dead soon um, thing during the 70s. So the Imperial War uh, Museum went out and interviewed tons and tons of First World War soldiers. And if they heard that the soldiers were, you know, had had been in the trenches in 1914, they always asked, did you participate in the Christmas truce? Because by now it's suddenly a big thing. 
And they all said, no. And they said, oh, what did you do on Christmas? They said, oh, well, we went out to no man's land and we buried bodies. You know, we arranged that with the Germans or we had arranged with the Germans not to shoot. Or, you know, we just had a really quiet day. But it wasn't a Christmas. It wasn't part of the Christmas truce because by then the Christmas truce meant fraternization. It meant football, all these things. And so soldiers who had actually participated in the Christmas truce were denying that they'd done so because the the whole view of what happened during the Christmas truce was so ingrained in the public collective consciousness that they didn't realize they'd been in one. And, and that struck me as amazing that you could actually persuade somebody who participated in the truce that they hadn't because they hadn't participated in that truce. And, and that to me was the biggest example of, of memory issues that I came across. You know, I, it, it was understandable to me that historians, particularly writing in the post-Vietnam era, would have a different attitude towards war, although I'd argue as historians, they're supposed to understand what people thought then rather than impose our ideas upon it. But the idea that people who'd been through it could be persuaded that their memories were incorrect, you know, was, was horrifying and, you know, funny to me at the same time. And since then, you know, there has been in the, certainly in the 90s and in this century, a revisionist pushback on the idea of the First World War um, but but the the collective understanding of it as the bad, useless, stupid war that nobody knew where they were fighting yet still persists, even though if you read these soldiers' letters, they knew perfectly well why they were fighting. You know, there was none of this, I'm here because, you know, who knows? It was, we're here, God, the Germans are doing awful things in Belgium. Yes, I've seen these atrocities happen with my eyes, you know. Um, so, so... It makes me crazy when historians impose their own ideas on the past, um, which is why I was inspired to, you know, to take what I'd started writing as a paper, it turned into a thesis and then turn it into a dissertation because I was just filled with this crusading zeal that I was going to correct everybody's notions of the First World War. P.S. It didn't work out that way. Everybody still believes that about the First World War. But, you know, <laughs> what can you do, right? So, Derek, I know you had a question, right? Well, I'm curious to get your take on how the, the Christmas truce kind of crosses from, uh, you know, a specialized or politicized even kind of uh, crosses from that area or that, that field into popular culture. And, and to me becomes even more decontextualized in the sense that it's, um, it stops even being about you know, this sort of imagined uh, pacifist re revolt against, or, you know, little revolt against the war, or, you know, about uh, World War One. you know, in, in any real sense, and, start, and becomes this kind of idealized, almost religious, in a sense, kind of inspirational uh, outbreak of humanity or, or, or something. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it quite. Uh, but it's, that seems to me to be the way it's, come to be portrayed uh, thinking in like songs and movies and sort of that that aspect of it i'm curious you know what what your uh, impression is of that process i, I think 
think a lot of it is we put ourselves into the past and think about what we would have done. And that's why the Christmas truce appeals to everybody, you know, that, oh, if we'd been in the trenches, we would have rebelled. We would have gone out and fraternized with the Germans. We would have played football with them. That's how we see ourselves. Just like we all think that if we'd lived in, in Germany during the 30s, we would have been, you know, resistance rather than Nazis. And the fact is, most of us would have been Nazis, you know, either out of self-interest or, or absolute belief. I'm not accusing anybody here, obviously, but you see what I'm saying. When we think of the past, you know, when we read history or historical fiction, we put ourselves in the past and we want to be the good guys. And that's why everybody loves the Christmas truce. By the way, all those songs, McCartney's Pipes of Peace and Bell Al Wood and all those, they're rubbish. You know, that's not what happened. Um, but if you haven't researched it, then yeah, you believe that's what happened. People believe the myth because the myth is much more interesting. Um, you know, it still amazes me when I pick up a history by by noted historians like John Kagan, and they're pushing the, the um, you know, the stereotyped view of the Christmas truce. Well, to be fair, John Kagan didn't have three years to spend researching the Christmas truce. He was researching an entire book on the First World War, the entire war. So, you know, you have to take three years to delve, well, like two years of research and a year of writing to delve into a topic that thoroughly and find out what really happened. Um, I tend to see the same paragraph repeated over and over again in people's histories because they just, they don't know what happened. So they just take what the previous historian said and, you know, rewrite it and, and move on. So one thing I was curious is that there's a, is there a transformation in how the truce is portrayed after the Cold War and particularly the establishment of the European Union? Because I could see this being like a founding modern moment of sort of cross-channel um, amity or something along those lines. And so uh, the, the first big transformation is Vietnam. And I was wondering if there's another big transformation after the end of the Cold War and the advent of the EU. Um, yeah, I would say there was. Uh, you know, the truce just kind of steamrolled and became steadily more popular and became known outside of Britain. I, as I said, Germany couldn't have cared less about the truce, say, except for the last 20 or 30 years, and even then it's still fairly minor for them. The French, um, if anybody fraternized with the Germans, they didn't want to know about it then. They probably don't want to know about it now. Um, but, but over the last 20 years, particularly as you got close to the 100-year anniversary of the war and, you know, the European Union and everything, they started having football matches every year. Um, and British school children were, you know, taken over to see the place on the, in, where it happened on the Western Front and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's been used to perpetuate the myth that we're all brothers under the skin because, look, we played football on one day even though we, you know, spent five years fighting then and then six years fighting in the Second World War. But we played football in one day, except they didn't really. There were only a few football games. Most of the references to football that happened in people's letters were all not, I, we played football with the Germans, but I heard that so-and-so had a game with the Germans. And the score is pretty nearly always 3-2 to the British. <laughs> Don't know where that score comes from, but they're always reporting that the that the British beat the Germans three two at football. It just didn't happen here. It happened somewhere else, but we don't know where. 
Um, that's really heard, interesting. That's a nice score. I mean, the British win, but the Germans got a couple of goals. Everybody was happy. You know. <laughs> yeah, the uh, thing is, though, though, we all know that the Germans would have won. They still do. So, <laughs> My husband's British and a football fan, so I've had to suffer through a lot of world and European cups. Um, it's a problem. So, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I do think that that, you know, using the Christmas truce as the brotherhood of man story. And you really can't find any other stories like that from World War One. So they're pretty much stuck with that one. If they're going to talk about the brotherhood of man transcending the hatred of war, Christmas truce is pretty much all you got. So I think this is a, about a good time to wrap up. But Terry, I was wondering if you had any final thoughts or, or where you see the Christmas truce from the vantage point of 2021. And if you have any messages or lessons uh, for our listeners on this wonderful Christmas day. <laughs> my, my lesson about the Christmas truce is never believe everything you read. Um, you know, <laughs> I spent 40 years as a paralegal being cynical about everything people said and just saying, yeah, I'll, I'll look at the documents and we'll take it from there. Um, and, and I would just say it's, it's a real example of why critical thinking is so important. You know, what we want to believe, what is nice to believe, what, what would be really good to believe is not necessarily what's true, which is why I always advise my students to look further. And if somebody's pushing a narrative down your throat, the first thing you want to know is why. You know, and, and so I don't think that's just true for historians. We're, we live in a world where everybody's trying to spin something. And the thing about the Christmas truce is the time nobody tried to spin it because nobody thought it mattered. Everybody just thought it was nice. Like I said, it was a snow day. And so it's kind of interesting to think of a world where people didn't spin everything. They just said, oh, yeah, that was cool. You know, we like reading about it. The newspapers kept publishing the letters, presumably because people were saying, this is really cool. We like reading about it. But nobody tried to spin it or make it more than it was. And if anything, I'd like to, people to just go back to those letters. Uh, they've been published in a number of places. You can find them online. Somebody collected a whole book of them. And just read them and say, this is what how the men felt. Because the letters were just really interesting. They were, they were written by humans, not by puppets we want to push around on a board and say, this is what they thought. Now, they all thought something different, and they all had different attitudes during the war, towards the war, and different attitudes towards the truth. And yet, in spite of the fact that they were fighting these people, they were still able to say, it's Christmas. Let's go out and hang it. Let's go hang out. And in a world where we can't even speak to our neighbors because of their bumper sticker. It's pretty amazing to think that these guys said, you know, we're fighting because it's our job, but these are people. Let's just go out and be friendly with them. And, and I think that's another lesson from the truce, that, that we don't have to hate everybody automatically. Although, if you see my Twitter feed, you might think that wasn't too accurate. <laughs> uh, and that's really a beautiful Christmas message to end on. And of course, when Terry is referring to spin, she is not referring to American prestige here. We only give you the straight, unvarnished truth. So, Terry, thank you again so much. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy Christmas. Uh, and we will see you all in the new year. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.